Welcome to the Rutgers Oral History Archive podcast. The Rutgers Oral History Archive, or ROHA for short, is dedicated to documenting the life stories of men and women in communities throughout New Jersey and Rutgers University. ROHA makes those oral history interviews available to students and scholars through our digital archive at oralhistory.rutgers.edu. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at at sign RU Oral History. Hi, I'm Sean Ellingworth, the director of the Rutgers Oral History Archive. I'm very proud to be able to bring you the first in our Rutgers Oral History Archive podcast series, which we're putting out just in time for Veterans Day. The focus of today's podcast is none other than Ed Kalaji. Ed was one of the Roja's first interviewees back in 1995. Uh, he was one of the uh, program's longtime volunteers, uh, having served on our Rutgers Living History Society board, which is a group that helps support Roja and uh, get our message out there to a larger community. And he would come in and speak to classes that we uh, uh, help teach here at Rutgers University. He'd always talk about his experience in World War II, but just as much he would focus on his early life growing up in uh, Sayreville and his post-war career in law and in uh, community service. So he really represents many of the aspects that we cover regularly in the Roja interviews, that it's not just about war stories, uh, it's about a person's entire life and their contribution to our society. That being said, today we are going to delve into uh, Ed's pretty impressive uh, wartime experience. Joining me now is uh, Zach Batista. Zach is one of our uh, newest staff members, uh, but he's had a great uh, long experience uh, as a student with Rutgers. Uh, Zach, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you've uh, worked with the program. It'd be my pleasure. Hi, my name is Zach Batista. I'm a history major and, well, I'm an alumni now of Rutgers University. I've always had an interest in history ever since I was in middle school. I loved the subject and everyone called it boring. I was that one kid that said, <laughs> I love history. It's the best thing. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. So one of your first experiences with Roja was uh, when you were a student in one of the burn seminars that Dr. John Chambers, our first uh, academic board chair and one of our founders, uh, used to teach. It was actually, yes. It was in my freshman year in my first semester of Rutgers. I remember one day, and this, I remember this very clearly, we were watching actually Ed's, the documentary the History Channel did on his shootout in Faison. And I actually just remembered as we were going through this, that I actually listened to him talk. And I remember this is like one of the few points in the class because at the time I wasn't too interested in oral history. I just wanted to learn about history in general. I thought to myself, this is the this is the cool stuff here. I'm like, this is the stuff that I want to learn more about. And I guess it's kind of funny how years later, here I am doing the first podcast with you guys and talking about his life, a man that I probably should have known more about before this, but now I truly have a true understanding and appreciation for what he's done. One of my professors suggested that I look into something with public history. And from there... I was connected to Roja, actually, and I was an intern here for only one semester. I wish I had done it earlier, honestly, because I had such a great time. And thankfully, Sean and his co-director, Kate, were willing to actually take me back for part-time. So that's currently what I'm doing right now here, and I love my work that I do here. I spend most of my days transcribing, editing interviews, writing the biographies we post online, and I'm in the process right now of learning how to publish the interviews online, and I'm helping Sean right now out with this. All right. Well, we're, we're very happy for that. Um, so uh, let's jump into it. Uh, we're, we're now going to uh, uh, get into the story you put together uh, based on Ed's interviews. I hope I do it justice. Well, I'm sure you will.
Ed Kalaji was born in 1924 in Sayreville, New Jersey, a working-class town known to many as the home of nationally known industries. In the early 20th century, many recent immigrants from Germany, Ireland, and elsewhere in Europe settled in Sayreville, including Ed's father, Anton, who emigrated from Poland in 1917 and soon met and married his mother, Mamie, a local Polish-American girl. Anton opened a butcher shop in town, which allowed his family to weather the Great Depression, which began when Ed was only five. As he progressed through his teen years, he saw the Depression's devastating impact on his neighborhood. People would come into my father's store and say, I'll do anything for food, any job you want done here, because we don't have anything to eat. When people were picking berries in the Wednesday, uh, that was a depression. In September 1939, the German invasion of Poland set off the Second World War in Europe. Ed recalled vividly how he and his father, who still had most of his family in Poland, learned about the Nazi offensive while delivering meat to a neighbor. And Mrs. Dominic said, was crying when we walked into the room, and she said, Tony, listen, she turned the radio up, and they announced that the Germans were bombing Warsaw. My father and Mrs. Dominic got on their knees and prayed. And me too, because they were. Uh, I didn't quite understand, quite grab it, but they were extremely upset over that. Uh, and uh, that's my first recollection of really what, what the impact that would have on my life and everybody else's life eventually. When I saw my mother, I saw my father and Mrs. Dominic in tears. And I, I mean real tears because this is where all of their parents and all their relatives and everybody were. Ed graduated from Sayreville War Memorial High School in 1943. He immediately entered the Army at Fort Dix and was sent to Fort Benning, Georgia for infantry basic training. He then joined the Army Specialized Training Program. Uh, those of us who felt we were college-bound, if we wanted to volunteer for the Army Specialized Program Training Program, we could go to Princeton, take a test, and if we qualified, then when we went into the military service, uh, we would go to college in that program and get to be uh, get an engineering degree and become officers in the Army. Uh, I went and I took that test uh, and uh, passed it, and I was notified that it, I was available to go into the program. And after completing the basic training, I was assigned to the University of Pittsburgh. We were transported to the University of Pittsburgh, and I became a uh, part of the cadet, first sergeant for the cadet company that was inducted at that time. While we were taking our engineering, our engineering studies there, within three months, the United you know, the Secretary announced the Secretary of War announced they were curtailing the program and they were assigning us directly to infantry division since we had had infantry uh, training. I actually knew very little about this program before reading Ed's interview. Yes, the Army Specialized Training Program, or ASTP, was established in 1942 and was an officer training program that serviced over 200,000 enlisted men who studied several specialities including engineering, medicine, and dentistry at hundreds of colleges and universities, including Rutgers. The majority of ASTP cadets were reassigned in the spring of 1944, before completing the program, to meet the manpower needs in other units, particularly those destined for frontline combat. 
Ed soon found himself on a troop transport bound for the European front, where he would join the 379th Regiment of the 95th Infantry Division as a replacement rifleman. On the eve of his unit's deployment to combat, he volunteered to serve in the Regimental Combat Scouts. This is a good example of how oral histories can spotlight some of the lesser-known roles soldiers played in war. As a combat scout, Ed served as a heavy machine gunner in a small squad that went out ahead of the regiment to perform reconnaissance and capture prisoners for interrogation. The night before we were going to combat, uh, I volunteered to enter into the 379th Infantry Regimental Combat Scouts, which was the unit which would do behind-the-lines patrol work, mainly at night, uh, to act as a armed force for the intelligence and reconnaissance platoon of the regiment. That platoon's function would be to go out and find out where the enemy was and what his strength was, but they would never fight. Our regiment felt that they should have an organization which would go out and, if necessary, actually capture a prisoner and bring him back. So most of our work was behind the lines work at night, going out either to establish where the German position was by getting into a firefight and then disengaging, or else actually capturing a German and bringing him back for interrogation so that they would know what was going on. Oral histories can also provide a glimpse into the strategies and techniques soldiers use to increase their chances of survival. When I took over this outfit, one of the things I did, the standard belt of ammunition comes with a tracer every five. I made mine every 20. Because I felt that when you fire the weapon at night with the tracers, if you had them every five, it makes a straight line to your gun to where the bullet's going. Because it contains a light pattern. Our guns had a lower cyclic rate of fire than the German guns did. They fired much faster. Burp, burp, burp. They, these guys were shooting at me, but they had, because of the higher speed, there was a straight green line over to where I was. When I fired back at them, there was no straight red line. It was just a red dot showed up once in a while. This kind of ingenuity could mean the difference between life and death in a firefight, such as the one that occurred during the Combat Scouts' first engagement in Vaison, France, in October of 1944. Here... Ed recalls how his unit was greeted when they entered the village under the cover of darkness, only to see a German flare illuminate the sky. So that flare goes off, and Grundle and I have our machine gun here on a tripod, and then music starts, American music. And an American woman's voice says, Men of the 95th, we know you are here. Why don't you come join us? We have a very warm, comfortable place where you can be, etc., etc., that whole spiel. This memory reveals how quickly things can fall apart in combat. This confrontation led to a firefight between Ed and his fellow scouts and the Germans that ended with an American victory. For his actions in the Battle of Vaison, Ed earned the Bronze Star and Combat Infantry Badge. He also got to meet one of the war's most colorful commanders. And I'm walking along this ridge, okay, standing straight up with my white rabbit skin vest, my polka dot scarf, when all of a sudden I see a guy walking towards me. He gets closer, I think, Jesus, he's got a silver-handled pistol, one of them. I get a little bit closer, and the voice says, don't salute, soldier. 
General George Patton. On, on, on the battlefield. So I said, excuse me, sir, but you shouldn't be here. He said, where's your helmet? I said, well, you know, he said, where'd you get that outfit? I said, well, you know, he said, what's your name, soldier? I said, Kalaji. He said, so you're one of the guys that I'm here to decorate today. He says, why are you dressed like that? I said, because of the job I do. I said, I got a right. He says, you're right. So he said, we both should get out of here, shouldn't we? I said, yeah, you don't belong here more than me. <laughs> I said, you're the general of all the armies. Anyway, the, the head of the scout group, Lewis, oh, he says to me, well, where the hell have you been? Because General Penn's coming here. He's going to give you and all of the members of that thing your infantry badge. So we get in line, we line up, and he, we, he drives the jeep, he gets the hell out. So he's going down the line. That was the particular busted one that I have here. That was, I wore that through all combat. I put it on there and wore it. He goes, I'm giving one to everybody, shaking hands with you. And he comes up to me and he says, oh, here you are. He said, where's your vest? I said, well, no, <laughs> over here. He says, tell me, how many of them did you kill? I said, they tell me maybe they're. He says, well, that's that many of the bastards that'll never reproduce shakes hands with me, and off he goes. Ed, like many veterans, had not shared these stories much outside of his family between the war's end and his first interview in 1995. After Ed added his oral history to Roja, the world took notice. The Battle of Azan and others from Ed's wartime experience were recreated in several History Channel shows, including Shootout and Patton 360. When hearing accounts of acts of bravery on the battlefield... We often overlook the long-term toll it takes on the soldiers involved. In this next clip, Ed, who was raised a devout Roman Catholic, recalls how he sought solace from an army chaplain as he wrestled with the consequences of his first battle. That, that I was unhappy with the fact that I'd killed these men, and I wanted to know whether I'd committed a sin in the eyes of my church or not. And he said, no. In effect, what he said to me was I should continue to do what I would do because I had God's blessing for what I was doing. Now, as a mature adult of 76 years, I might question that a little bit now, but I accepted it at that point in time. Uh, and that, that was my initial response to that. Ed goes on to explain how General Patton's methods changed the way his division fought in many of their battles. General Patton's theory on attacking was called walking fire. He would line up a company, a battalion, a regiment, a division in line, and everybody would start walking at once, and everybody would start firing at once. You were firing at random so that you had a line of walking fire, so that if the enemy were there, they had too many plates by band, and you sort of overwhelmed them with this. One of the 95th Infantry Division's biggest challenges came during the campaign to capture Metz, France, a well-defended strategic point ringed by heavily reinforced forts. 
Ed and his fellow soldiers arrived in the area in mid-October 1944. So we got there. We, we took positions, and it was raining. So Grundle and I were told to set up at one end of the trench. We took the machine gun and set it on what we thought was the hump of ground. And we leaned against something that we thought was a pile of dirt. It turned out when it got to be daylight, these were bodies of people that had been killed that were covered by raincoats that we were laying on in the trench. was all the water from the rain, the blood from the guys that had been shot up. And we were there. In the meanwhile, every 30 minutes, six more shells come pounding in, and they were caving in the sides of the trench on you while you're laying there. This is the kind of scene we have come to associate with the First World War, but rarely think about in regard to World War II. That's right. Eventually, the 95th prevailed, and Ed took part in the capture of a key German emplacement. Here, he describes how he dealt with German POWs. So I took out my 45 and cocked it, and I took a hand grenade and pulled the pin out and put it in my hand and walked down there. And there I met a young German officer, and I asked if he was going to surrender, and he said yes. I said, well, come over here, and I put my hand on his stomach with the hand grenade in it. I said, now, don't fool around with me, because if this is some sort of a ruse, I'm gonna let this hand grenade go and we'll both be dead. He had to speak very good English. He was an SS officer, and they were trained in English, and he said, you have no need to worry, sir. And out came 30-some soldiers from inside. U.S. forces captured Metz on November 22, 1944. For their role in the intense fighting, the 95th earned the nickname the Iron Men of Metz, and Ed earned the Silver Star. History often focuses on big battles like Metz, D-Day, and the Battle of the Bulge. However, accounts like Ed's remind us that soldiers faced life-and-death moments in conflicts great and small, and even in everyday incidents, such as the following where he asked a fellow soldier to come forward. It was characteristic of me that I always walked erect, and I didn't, I didn't do what you see in, in the movies where they hold the rifle at port arms and they're running bent over. I mean, it was just the way it was for me. So I looked back and I saw the car that was coming. Uh, all of a sudden there was this huge explosion. Apparently there was an anti-tank mine there and he, when he put his foot down he stepped on it and it blew him up into the sky and he landed about five feet away from me. When I looked over my shoulder his head was gone, his arms were gone, his legs were gone and you could see the steam coming from where his neck had been. Uh, and I then realized that I had walked over there, I had walked out there, walked back there, came back again, and walked over that thing three times then and hadn't done anything to it. He had the misfortune of stepping on it. Uh, and it, it was one of the most devastating experiences of all because forever in a day I have to know that if I didn't go back and ask for him that maybe he'd still be alive. On the other hand, that's what war is all about. This clip demonstrates a common theme reported in interviews with veterans, survivor's guilt. Yet, 
Not every war story revolves around the violence and tragedy that surrounded Ed, as this next clip illustrates. I was wandering down the street and I walked into this building to see what was in there. We were looking for eggs, chickens, and stuff like that. And I didn't say anything. And I walked upstairs to see what was upstairs. And as I was coming down, I heard a noise. And I thought, there's somebody in that closet there. So I say, come and say, here, mit the Hans and Hope, which is German for come here with your hands on your head. Nothing happens. I said, come out. So I took the 45 out and I put a whole clip into that door. The door then swung open. What came out was a goat. Moments like these sometimes interrupted the war's constant beat and provided humor to uplift the veterans' spirits. Interviews also reveal the soldiers' motivations for fighting. Here, Ed talks about his feelings regarding the war. You have to understand that, that in my phrase, this was a war that had to be fought, and this was a war that had to be won. I'm not distinguishing it from other wars that you're, you're conscious of. This one had to be fought. This one had to be won. After the war in Europe ended, Ed returned to the United States to await deployment to the Pacific Front. After the war with Japan ended, he was discharged at Camp Pine, New York. He then used the GI Bill to enroll in Rutgers University in New Brunswick, where he obtained a bachelor's in political science. Then he went on to obtain his law degree at Rutgers Law School in Newark. He worked as an assistant prosecutor in Middlesex County before starting his own practice in his hometown of Sayreville. There he raised his children, David, Christine, Catherine, and Lawrence, with his first wife, Joan, then, after her passing, his second wife, Irene. He later became an assemblyman in the New Jersey legislature and served on the State Lottery Commission. Ed passed away in August of 2018. When pondering how the war affected him, Ed had this to say. I learned from World War II that when you get up in the morning, you see the sun shining. That you say, thank God I'm still here today. That, that's, that's, that's what the war taught me because you, you live day to day and you learn to appreciate life. Well, Zach, that was a, a great account of uh, Ed's service in World War II. Thank you. What, what did you think about uh, Ed's story overall? When I read Ed's interview in general, it really reminded me of why I fell in love with this type of history. This story here has so much personal detail to it and so many accounts of things I would have never read about in a history textbook. I didn't know about Patton's method of walking fire. I didn't know about the brutality of like World War II. It's mentioned in textbooks briefly, but something like that, like the story where they were sitting on top of bodies and trenches, really puts you into perspective how brutal this war was. And that's why I think preserving this oral history is really important because he really it really gives us a new perspective on history in general and it can help us reflect on things back with our current history right now. Well, it's very interesting. Um, I know that that's one of the things that uh, Ed really wanted students to get out of these interviews. You know, he didn't want it to glorify war. He wanted it to come across as what really happens. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Zach, for all your, your work on this. I'm glad we're able to bring uh, Ed's story to more people. He was a wonderful guy, and he would come and talk to our classes for many, many years. And 
Uh, now, you know, an even larger audience uh, will get to hear some of his stories. So be sure to follow uh, the Roja podcast on Apple Podcasts uh, or SoundCloud. And uh, let us know what you think. Uh, please write a review. Uh, this is coming out in time for Veterans Day, so we encourage educators out there to uh, share this story in their classrooms. This podcast includes excerpts from the following oral histories in the Rutgers Oral History Archive collection. Ed Kalaji, Part 1, interviewers G. Kurt Peeler, Christopher Eberly, conducted in New Brunswick, New Jersey on March 29, 1995. And Ed Kalaji, Part 2, conducted by Sandra Stort-Holyoke and Neil Hammerschlag on February 16, 2001, again in New Brunswick, New Jersey. The Rutgers Oral History Podcast is produced by Rutgers Oral History Archive, Sean Illingworth and Kate Rizzi. Today's podcast was written by Zach Batista and co-produced by Sean Illingworth and Zach Batista. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Don Koger, and special thanks to uh, the family of Ed Kalaji. The Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast was recorded in the Rutgers College Class of 1948 sound booth. The Rutgers Oral History Archives is a center within the Department of History in the School of Arts and Sciences at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. To find out more about ROHA, visit our website at oralhistory.rutgers.edu.